is the question, am I really a Christian? Anybody ever ask that question? Well, you're going to know at the end of this talk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that'll that'll work. Yeah, that'll do. So we're going to need the microphone. People complain. Ah. It's just for... Uh, yeah. Hi. It's lovely to meet all of you. Um, I'm Matt. Um, if you don't know who I am, um, I'm Michelle's wife. If you don't know who Michelle is, that's Derek's daughter. If you don't know who Derek is, I'm sorry. I'm of no help to you. <laughs> I'm you figure it out. Um, so, as Derek said, we're walking through Am I Really a Christian today? And so, you know, this is a really interesting question to walk through. And especially today, as we walk through it, we're not going to be going from a specific Bible verse. So we're going to be doing a lot of walking through scripture and just from beginning to end stuff. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to be working out a lot. If Bruce is trying to keep up, good luck. Um, so, I'll just, <laughs> so I'll just pray before we start. Um, Father... Just pray that you would bless us this morning. That just as we ask these deep, um, yeah, and just questions, just pray that, yeah, that you would show us the answers. Pray that you would be the thing that brings us assurance and that you would be the ground of our hope. So thank you for all that you do for us and just pray that you would guide us this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So all of us, or most of us here, I'm sure, would probably say we're Christians. Most of us wouldn't doubt that. And it's an interesting thing too, because my entire life, if you had have asked me at any point, am I a Christian? I would have said yes. If you had have asked me when I was 18, it would have wholeheartedly been, I'm a Christian. And I would have also told you I've been Christian my entire life. But the interesting thing now, if you ask me today, am I, are are you really a Christian? Yes, I am. And I have been for four years. And so like, Something happened when I was actually became saved that I realized that for the last 19 years of my life, I'd actually been not, I didn't realize the truth. I'd actually been living a lie the whole time. But yet it's this interesting thing that especially all of us are, you know, like, you know, you think the 20th century, a lot of you guys would have grown up in the 1900s. That makes you sound really old. You're not. You guys are young and able-bodied. But... You know, we grew up in a time where everyone is Christian. You ask anyone, and like, especially asking yourself this question of, am I really a Christian? What you're really asking is, am I going to heaven? Like, that's what we're all concerned with. You know, we know that there's this life and we want to live it well, but ultimately I'm concerned, am I going up there? Am I going to get to the pearly gates and be welcomed in? And so it's interesting because everyone apparently is, you know, it's, Especially when, you know, it's, I've, I've yet to been, I've yet to be to a funeral where, some, where someone hasn't gone to heaven. You know, the pastor's never gone up, gotten up and been like, he was such a great person, but come on, let's be honest. He's probably a little bit crispy at this moment. You know, the reality is we, we don't question the fact that everyone's going up there. And... You know, this isn't to say that we are not. Like, I hope that every single person in this room truly is. And look, there's a good chance that we are. But Jesus also tells us that it's not plain as simple as going to church or being in this room and therefore we're going to heaven. So that's the question we want to ask today. And, 
you know, what do we think when we go up to heaven? We are good people. We trust in God. Those things will get us into heaven. And we even, like, look on our lives, and we can't help it but think about the things of, oh, like, okay, like, I trust in God, and, you know, I've, like, and ultimately, I'm a good person. Like, I've done, like, I'm not perfect. Don't get me wrong, but ultimately, I try. I really do. And I think that's all well and good, but I want to, like, I want to dive into Scripture, and let's just see what, what does God have to say about the kind of people that will be in heaven. You know, when we come before God, who's he going to be is like essentially give who will be the kind of people that are in heaven essentially and so i'm going to go from psalm 15 you don't have to try and keep up but it's okay i'm not going too quickly yet so this psalm was written by david and it's titled who shall dwell on my holy hill essentially holy hill it's just another word for who will be in heaven who will dwell with god in heaven and what this is a question that David's asking to God. Who will dwell with you, Lord? Will it will I dwell with you? And God answers him with a list of requirements. And so I'll just read through it now. Who shall dwell on your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill, Lord? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes the reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honours those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. I don't know about you, but that's so encouraging. I look at that and I'm like, okay, it actually isn't at all. The reality is I look at that and that's terrifying in regard. I know Jesus is in the picture, but right now, Dave, especially for David himself, he didn't know of Jesus. There was no, there was a gospel, but it wasn't the gospel of Jesus yet. And so when I'm looking at that, all I see is someone who's, okay, so as long as you've never done anything wrong, you've never lied to someone, you've, you've always just loved every single person you've come in contact with and just never once even gossiped about them. You've just, and you've just loved everything about God. Everything he says, even in your heart, every thought you have is, oh, man, praise the Lord. Oh, I just want to, I want to give all of my riches to everyone. You know, even if I don't have an opportunity to do it in my heart, I desperately want to do it. Maybe one of you guys is like that. I, I know I sure am not. And so in this moment in time, when we're looking at this passage, all I'm left is thinking, well, I guess I'm not dwelling on that holy hill. And we know what the opposite of the holy hill is on Judgment Day. And so, but the reality is, I, I know I'm at least a de- I'm, I'm a somewhat decent person. You know, I bought Maccas for someone once out of my own pocket. I sometimes pay for meals. I, I open the door for my wife sometimes. I'm a, I'm a decent person. But again, I want to, let's, let's go through scripture. This is going to be the fun part for you, Bruce. Um... And just read some verses from beginning to end and just, just see what God is telling us about who we are. So I want to start in Genesis 6, verse 5. You want to hold this for this, this portion? Because it's going to... I need to flick the Bible over. Thanks. So we're just going to be in Genesis 6, verse 5. Yeah, that'll work. Perfect. So Genesis 6, verse 5. 
All right. So yeah, this is Adam and Eve, or a couple of centuries afterwards. Let's see how humanity's going. <coughs> the Lord saw the wickedness of man on the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay. So we're not doing too well. And it's a part when we're going through these verses, it'll constantly talk about our hearts. When it's talking about it, it's just like the thing from which everything flows. It's like all the actions that we do, they come from our thoughts, which flow from our heart. And so, so far, everyone, every single person on the earth, obviously Genesis 6, it's Noah. Everyone except Noah and his kids, nothing good whatsoever. All right. But we're going to skip ahead a bit. We'll go to Jeremiah 17. That's nine. I'm just really hoping it picks up from here. Like, surely there's some good on the earth. Surely something's, someone's doing something all right. And yet, all right. So Jeremiah 17, this guy was a prophet to the people. And this was in the middle of, you know, Israel, the people of God. They have been living in the land for a couple hundred years now. 17 verse 9. All right. And so especially, you know, we're asking the question, how are their hearts going? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Okay, we're still not doing too well. But the New Testament, that's, that's why us Christians always read from the New Testament. Because there's good stuff in there and we'll never feel convicted. Can you come with me to Mark 7, 21? All right. So Jesus is on the scene now. He's come to, you know, transform us and change us. So what does he say about us? 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within. All right, I'm so sorry. I'm I'm trying to find something good in here, and it's just not working. Uh, Can you come with me to Revelation 3.21? Oh, 3.17. And I think this something good in here. Alright. Revelation 3.17. You are wretched, miserable, poor, poor, blind, and naked. Alright. Well, at least we're not murderers and thieves in that one, but again, just, and I know this is just a real downer. We're just in the dumps at the moment. But this is just to paint the very clear image of what we are before God. Even though that we see ourselves like, you know, we're just naturally inclined to see ourselves in a better light. We don't want to see the darker sides of us. And Jesus and everyone is just in these scriptures is just telling us we, we don't do good. That, you know, by the grace of God, he restrains <laughs> some of the things inside us. But it's, it's mostly evil just coming out. And so... And we also got to understand, it's like, and we, we don't love God naturally. Like, we don't, like, when you see our hearts, all that's coming out of it is just filth. And so, you know, we're thinking, oh, well, who's going to be in heaven? At this moment, it doesn't look like it's going to be us. So, it's just painting very clearly. We fall very short of God's requirements. And so, when we come in, and we're about to get into Jesus... So this is the good part. This is the good news. We need to understand exactly how we come into it. That we're sinners who love sin. We're not good people who kind of are sitting on the fence. We're just 
bad people that love sin. And because when you come into that, trust me, this is actually how you understand. It seems weird how I'm going from the, from the question, am I really Christian? But when you get this part about asking yourself these questions and understanding the kind of person that you were before you were saved, oh man, this is when you really understand how great God's grace is. So, we understand it. We fall very far short. But the great thing, if you measure anyone up against that Psalm 15, against the requirements, not a single person. There's, there's not a single person in humanity fits that, except for one person, Jesus. Now, he did this insurmountable task of living every moment of his life blamelessly. Even when it talks about, you know, it talks about our hearts and how everything that comes to them is evil. And then you look at G and like, oh, well, what is it? And essentially that it says in Psalm 15, everything that comes out of the heart of the person who will dwell on God's holy hill is blameless. It's perfect. He only speaks truth. And so that's what Jesus did. Even in every thought and everything that he did, God was with him and directing his thoughts and everything that he had was picture perfect. Never was God angry or anything towards him because he never saw any sin in him. And so Jesus, when he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane, right before all that stuff happens, he's at a place where he's praying to God and he has every right to become the person who goes to dwell on God's holy hill. He, he could call down God right then and be taken up and there would be absolutely nothing wrong with that because he deserves to be there. But yet, in that moment, it was interesting. He, he didn't do that. He didn't call God down to come and save him. Well, he didn't even need saving. He just come God to come get him because he deserved to be up in heaven, not down on earth. And instead, he chose a different path. And it was interesting. He chose to go through hell on earth for us. And so, you know, it's interesting. Because you see, he comes before people. He, become, he gets arrested. He's sent before a judge. And the whole time, he's arrested on no real charge. And then all the charges that are brought against him in the court, they, they're actually, none of them are verified. He's actually told by Pilate that he's innocent. And so, we have a perfectly innocent person in the human courts and in God's courts. He's full and clear. But yet, he stays silent, he doesn't say a thing, and he goes to the cross. Now, the reason he went to the cross is because, well, one, he loves us, but two, because that was meant to be the place that we were meant to go. That, you know, we don't, have a phys- we don't really have a physical representation of hell except on the cross. When he's like, you know, I don't know if you guys have seen Passion of the Christ, I never actually have, but I've heard that it's absolutely horrendous. Like, this, the movie's good, but it's just gory and all kinds of things. And so, Jesus took on that, let alone, he took on the weight, of this, this weight of the sin of the world. So when he had never done a single thing wrong, he walked around with the guilt of murders and adultery and all kinds of evils. When he had never even had to feel that, but yet he took it on so that we wouldn't have to. And... It's interesting. So we see this perfect person and we see us. We're, you know, Jesus is, he should be able to dwell up on the holy hill. We're at the bottom of the hill. We don't even want to go up the hill. We're we're walking in different directions. Anything but going up the hill. And yet he is saying, no, I'm I'm not going to stay up on that hill. I'm going to come down and better yet, you can take my place. This, this is one of the coolest, 
Yeah. Derek talked about this this doctrine um, during communion last weekend at the SQCCC, whatever it's called, conference. Um, and it's called the Great Exchange. It's one of the greatest. It's literally like, I think, just it's the ground of Christianity, but it's one of the greatest tools of it as well. It's essentially, it's the Great Exchange. So what it talks about is Jesus takes all of us and all, and he takes our place. That's why he went to the cross. So that should have been us walking there fully guilty. And instead, we swap places with him now. Now we come before God dwelling on that holy hill. And when God looks at us, all he sees is perfect righteousness. He sees someone who is blameless and flawless and perfect. And now, that just boggles my mind. I think that's just amazing because the reality is it's like, I can think I'm a good person all day. I'll think good things about myself, but I, I, I've read the Bible. I know that I don't measure up to that. But yet I know that when I go to heaven, I can trust in that. And that's where I actually derive my assurance from. That's what I trust in, not anything that I could have ever done on this world. And so we've gone through a long trip, and you're probably still wondering, what does this have to do with assurance? What does this have to do with am I really a Christian? And when we talk about that great exchange and all that kind of thing, the reality is, you know, we thought everyone's going to heaven. The world will even tell you there's many roads up the, up the mountain. Everyone's going there. But the road, I hate to break the news, the Bible even tells us not everyone's going there. Many are called, few are chosen. Many will take the wide path that leads to destruction, but few will take the straight and narrow way. Yeah. And so, but painting this whole picture before us, I want us to understand the fact that we do not save ourselves. Because as we walk through the rest of the sermon, it will be kind of practical points of how to know you're a Christian. But we have to know that it's not these things that are actually saving us. But the things that I'm going to talk about are actually the results of God having saved us. So you see, you mind going to Romans 8.30 for me, um, Bruce? Now, this is one of my favorite promises in the entire Bible. It's a great promise. And so it comes right after God will work all things to the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And then it launches into this great promise called the gold chain of redemption. It goes from those who he called, he also predestined, those who predestined, he justified, those who he justifies, he also glorifies. And that's like an unbroken chain. If you're called, you can't, you can't fall out of favor with God. You can't lose your salvation. And that's, again, should bring us great assurance. But there's something in the middle there where it talks, those who we predest- predestined, I think he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so in the salvation act, he's not just saving us and then, you know, the great exchange happens, we're blameless before God, and now, I will say, sleep. we'll just uh, sit, crack open a cold one and have a good time. Is just wait for the second coming, or, you know, till I die, and then I'll go see what God. He actually has a purpose for us, along as he, you know, what we talk about, sanctifying us. And his desire is for us to be conformed to the image of Christ, meaning he wants us to become like Jesus. And not to say that we now have to do the work to become like him. No, no, he's going to do that work. But the great thing is we get to go along with him for the journey. And we get to, and as we see him working in us, not us doing the work, we can actually grow in our assurance that we are actually saved. 
So, yeah, that's essentially the picture we want to keep. And now I want to, this, this second portion of the sermon now, we're going to launch into a few points, essentially. And this isn't a checklist. Unfortunately, like, you know, God didn't write a checklist at the back end of the Bible that, you know, you can kind of tick off and it's like, boom, yeah, I'm good. But going through some of Scripture, you can actually see that there are certain things that God is working out in the hearts of believers. And it's not necessarily that you go to a soup kitchen or that you, I don't know, give Clyde a ride or take him out for a spin or something like that. It's things that are going on in our heart that we'll see manifesting in our lives. And so one of the first things I want to touch on is just belief in Jesus. So there's three things primarily. It's believe Jesus was the Son of God. So believe he actually is God himself. When he came down on earth, he was God. And believe that he was actually the one through the whole Old Testament that was promised to forgive the sins of the world. So do you believe he was God? Do you believe he came to die for the sins of the world? That he was the prophesied one? And do you believe that he actually came in the flesh? He wasn't some weird ghost thing that was kind of hovering over the ground. He actually became human. And see, they seem like very basic things. Like something that almost all Christians would believe. And you're right. But they're actually a ground for assurance for us because there's this verse in 1 Corinthians 2. You you don't have to go to it, it's all right. Um, It says, The natural man does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You know, back, you know, 50 years ago, most people were Christians, but now we can actually see a lot of people who think that we're silly. We think that we're, why would we believe in, you know, I just hear comedians all the time, oh, you know, you go to your big daddy up in heaven who's, you know, going to solve all your problems. And we start to see that the world actually thinks that what we believe is foolish. And so to actually believe and hold on to them and trust them despite people around you possibly ridiculing you for thinking that there is a God, it's actually no small feat. That's actually God at work in you because we don't naturally believe those things. This is actually... God's spirit working in you. And another point is also revolving around faith in him. Is faith in him despite the circumstances. So faith in his promises, primarily. So, you know, as we kind of read from Romans 8.30 and the one before that, the promise, God will work all things to the good of those who love him. We all know that promise. We all love that promise. Everyone loves that promise. And especially because it makes us think that God loves us when everything's going really good. And so it's, it's just a great promise. But the assurance isn't that we trust it when it seems like that promise is, like, you know, we can see the promise working. It's trusting the promise when it doesn't seem like it's working. You know, I can, I can only imagine for you guys, like, like, going through all that and then just having to be like, oh, but God's doing work. That, you know, obviously you can see the work after. You see the three months after. You see how God, through the prayers of his people, reduced the swelling and got that tumor down. But man, I couldn't imagine those three months for you. Yeah, yeah, that was not fun. Well, albeit, um, it's been awesome. It's actually really cool to meet you. Um, Jax talks a lot about you, and so you're a cool man. Yeah. And so, it's not easy to trust in God's promises when things are going seemingly opposite to His promises. But when we believe in a God that controls all things, that's sovereign over all things, that why that's why that promise is so good. 
That's why we can trust him that even when we get cancer or when we are going through a divorce or when our business is on the verge of bankruptcy, something like that, God says, I'm working all things to your good. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Your salvation is not dependent on you thriving. It's actually dependent on you being dependent on me. And so, again, have, and this is something that like, obviously take time as we're a Christian. I haven't walked through a ton of, you know, like life crises or honestly i've had quite a crazy time off since becoming christian like my life's been better quote unquote but i don't trust in that i, I know i'll go down here. i know the lot of christians are suffering and some of you know that very well i know like i don't know all of you but like i know i know Derek. he's been christian for 30 years or something like that yeah like getting up there um and i know he's walked through his fair share of trials he should have more assurance than me because he has walked through the fires. He's seen that God has been with him this whole time because he hasn't, fought, he hasn't left God behind. He's trusted him that even when it seems like God is failing, he knows that God doesn't fail. And so yeah, it's an encouragement to us. And yeah. Now, another point. Those who love God will keep his commandments. Now, we're getting into like the real worksy stuff now. And... um. Yeah, this is, it's always a really interesting thing because all of us love God. We all like to think we love... If we say we're Christian, you know, we love God, He does stuff for us, it tends to work out really well. And especially there are churches that just thrive off this whole idea. They love the Jesus that preaches <coughs> salvation and forgiveness. They love, who, does, who doesn't want to be forgiven? Who doesn't want to go to heaven? Who doesn't want to go to the holy hill? But they... Do not like the Jesus that tells them, take up my cross and follow me. And it seemed like a dichotomy when I've kind of told you, oh, everything I've just, you know, Jesus saves us and all that, but now go and obey his commandments. But it would seem kind of funny if we (laughs) just went out and instead of, you know, oh, Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Now I'm just going to go keep living on my sins. I'm going to go keep doing that. What kind, of, what kind of child does, like, what kind of child, you know, you know when your child get, get to the age where suddenly they really recognize and thank you for all the work that you did as they were growing up? It'd be really funny if they're like, thank you for so all the times you disciplined me and corrected me and then go back to doing what they were doing when they were 15 or when they were 12. That wouldn't make much sense. But yet, that's what some of these churches thrive off. They will never tell someone to change their life. They're never going to tell them that they shouldn't be angry at their children. They'll never tell them that you have to forgive someone who's wronged you. As long as you just love God, all things are good. And so, the thing is that the mark of a true Christian is someone who actually obeys God's commands. And one of the most important commands God ever gave, Jesus especially gave, that I have to emphasize, repent and believe. Because the reality is, obviously, if I'm telling you to obey all God's commands, you're going to be like, I can't physically do that. We literally spent most of the sermon, you telling me I can't do what Jesus could do, which is obey God perfectly. But Jesus also says, obey and repent where you don't. Because if every morning we're waking up and being like, God, I want to obey you, and where I don't, I am sorry. Forgive me. And help me to live according to your commands. Then that's the sign of a true Christian. Not someone who's like, 
God loves me, and doesn't think about them the rest of the day and simply goes about doing whatever they think is right. And on to another point that is closely tied to this one, which again, now there's a lot of Christians again that love God and even like, you know, will actually obey his commands. Like, these are true Christians. This is something that just Christians, whew, it's hard. And it's loving other people. Like, it's, it's easy enough to love Jesus because he was perfect. He never did any wrong to me. He's working on things for my good. But loving other people is just, you know, we're, we're sinners. We hurt each other. We're, we're always trying to get in, get in each other's way. And the world's always going to tell us, oh, just distance yourself from those people. You don't want to get your life involved with people who are just going to drag you down. And yet God and Jesus tells you, get around those people. And yet, in 1 John 3, there's a whole chapter all about loving your brother. That's the people in the church. And he says, you cannot love God and hate your brother. And he even tells us, it says in verse 16, maybe I, it's not too much to do. Um, it says verse 16, you will lay down your life for your brother. So when the world's telling you, ah, just distance yourself from these people, what God's saying, get around these people, get around them. And, and I think that should be such an encouragement when you see people in the church actually loving on people that aren't what the world says are useful, what the world says are productive, or what they're you know, beneficial to you, but they're people that can be frustrating. When you come around those people, when you see people doing that, that's amazing. That's actually an assurance that God's working on you because people in the world, there might look, there'll be some who do that, sure. But the reality is it's not a natural thing that people do. And so to see that in work people's lives, that's to know that God's at work in them. And Bruce, would you mind going to Luke 18? Um, so this is probably the most important point. After having gone through what is essentially a checklist to see if you're a Christian, even though I've emphasized we trust in God, we always have to ask the question, what is our hope in? What are we trusting in? Because when you go out, and you know, the Bible even tells you to examine yourself, when you're looking through your life, seeing if God's at work in it, the reality is you'll probably be, <laughs> probably be fairly disappointed. You're probably going to leave with a lot of doubt. And that's the greatest thing, because that's where Jesus comes into this. See, so Luke 18, it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax, tax collector. Um, I think it's partway through there. Sure. Um, it's talking about, many of us probably know the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. For those who don't, it's a parable of, a, of two men who are both in the same place. They're both in the temple before God and they're praying to him. Well, they're actually in the synagogue, I think. Um, but essentially, they're before God. One of them, the Pharisee. This is a man who lives a righteous life. This is a man who tries to obey, his, obey God's commands. And when he comes before God, he's praying. He, he knows his need for God. He loves God. And yet his, his appeal to God before him is, oh, thank you, Lord, that I am not like other people, that I try and that I work hard. I know I need you, Lord. I know I need your forgiveness. But 
at least when you look out, Lord, look at how much better I'm doing than the rest. And now, would we say that we think like that? No. But I know, I know my heart. I know it loves to try to justify itself. I know that all the time it's just looking around and it thinks, you know, I look at other people in my church and I'm like, man, I just don't get it. Not like I do. The things I do. And I just, I just can't silence that voice sometimes. But it loves to be. But we have to realize the Pharisee is not the one who wins in this parable. Because we actually want to look at the tax collector. The tax collector was sitting in the back. The back pews, right up the back. Warming the bench. And he was just sitting there with... He couldn't even look up to heaven, it says, because he felt so much guilt. And all he says is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that is just one of the... It doesn't seem like that's the kind of people we should be. Like, obviously, you know, we don't want to be like the Pharisee. But surely we're not these beaten down people. But and it says at the end of the parable, he walked away justified. Justified meaning... It ties into the greater chain. It means completely innocent and done, like completely purged of guilt before God. And what did he do? His hope was not in his works like the tax collector, like the Pharisee, but were actually in Jesus. And his hope was in God, in a God who was gracious and who forgives sins. And he walked away with full assurance that he would make it into heaven. And so now that's. Yeah, that's like the ultimate thing, because we don't want to, you know, the likely we know the, the passage. It's Matthew seven twenty three. It's the, the people that come before God with, oh, Lord, look what works we did in your name. Look at all these things that we've done for you, Father. And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you workers of lawlessness. And, you know, the, thing, the problem wasn't that they did things for God. There was nothing wrong with that. It's actually great to do things for God. We should be ambitious. We should be out there, you know, just being generous and being, just going out and do the work of the Lord. But the problem was when they came before God, they said, look what we've done for you. Look at all we've done. Look at our resume. Surely it's enough for you. <laughs> it wasn't. Because they still didn't live up to those standards we talked about in Psalm 15. They still had iniquity everywhere. Sin everywhere. And so it was actually the tax collector, the man who never, never talked about, you know, he was a tax collector. He probably had a lot of money. He never talked about how much he gave to the church. I'm sure he would have given quite a bit. But yet his grace and his hope was firmly set on God and the one who forgives and can pass over his transgressions. So... We want to be like that man. And as I was doing this, it reminded me of a story. There was this guy. He was, his name was Harold Okenga. Now, he was a big preacher back in the 1900s. He died in the 80s. He's largely been forgotten about. No one really knows much about him. But this dude back in the day, he, he would have ministered to millions of people. You know, he was a close friend with Billy Graham. He helped him get his career started. And he was like, you know, a theological professor. He, president, he was a president of several seminaries. So this dude had like, you know, a resume that looked pretty good. And anyway, he was sitting on his deathbed, actually. He was dying of cancer. And some elders from his previous church came to visit him. And as he was sitting on his bed, he knew it was terminal. He was, he was going, to see his, going to see the Lord. And one of the elders 
come up to him because he was quite troubled. Just, you know, even though he'd been a Christian his whole life, coming when you face that moment, it can be scary. <coughs> even knowing that you've trusted the Lord the whole time. And this guy, this elder um, from his previous congregation, just goes, oh, think of all you've done. Think of the people you've helped, the people you've ministered to. You've trained the next generation. You've spread the gospel. You've defended the faith. Look at everything you've done. And he was still just troubled. He's like, that, his, after hearing his resume, that just did nothing for him. He was just still troubled. And then another elder, having kind of overheard this, just walks up to him and just whispers in his ear. He's just like, when you come before the master, just say to him, say to him Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And tears rolled down his face. And in that moment, he had more assurance than a lifetime of good works could ever give him. Why? Because he placed his trust in the person who had actually lived a lifetime of good works, who had lived perfectly, and he trusted in Jesus that he would cover over his sins. And so, in part, when you wake up every morning and think, am I really a Christian today? What are you going to put your assurance in? Is it going to be in what you did yesterday or the day before that or the life you've lived? Is it going to be anything about that? Yeah, you can get assurance from looking at it. But I'm telling you, the best thing that you can do every morning is bank on Jesus. I know that every morning when I wake up, that I'm going to do things throughout the day that will just wear my assurance down. But I know that when I start my morning and I pray... Lord, forgive me and help me to believe. I have more assurance in that moment that I will go to heaven than I do throughout the whole day. And I know that even though in that moment, but that prayer continues to go and continues to work on my heart, helping me to repent more and helping me to believe and trust in Jesus more. And so, yeah, that's primarily what we want to be placing our trust in. Otherwise, if you try to find a checklist for being a Christian, it's just going to fall apart. So, look, that's largely it. I still live with plenty of doubt in my life. You guys will still encounter much doubt. You'll even Harold, this great giant. He was a giant of the faith, and he still doubted even on his deathbed. But just know in your heart that you say and pray to God, Lord, I have doubt. I don't believe as I should, but help me. And I put my faith in you that you cover over my sins. Have faith that you'll get through those gates, that you'll be on that holy hill with Jesus because you put your trust in him. I have hope that you'll be there with me. Um, yeah, so let's finish up in prayer. Thank you. Um, Father, I just pray that you would give us an assurance in your faith. And well, in your goodness to us, in our salvation, that you have saved us. Pray that it would go beyond the things that we can see, and that it would go to your promises that you would give us, that you have given us. That you are working all things to our good, Lord. That you will not forsake us, Lord. You will never leave us. And so, help us, Lord, as we just wrestle with this question. Continue to help us to just ask questions, and Lord, to just look around at those around us, and to even ask the question of them. And yes, Lord. I just pray that you would just give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. Um, yeah.
So thank you, Father, and just continue to bless us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.